This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, Before we begin, let's focus on the most important thing. What's the greatest political TV show Ever. Uh, after last week's episode, when I chatted with Hugo Rifkin, I ran the World Cup of political TV shows on Twitter as promised. Uh, the West Wing knocked the British version of House of Cards out in the semi final, while in the other semi final, Yes Minister was defeated by the thick of it, which went on to win the final with 61% of the vote, confirming Twitter's obsession with all things Armando Iannucci. In fact, we'd all rather have a load of sweary sarcasm than this slightly idealised view of politics that you get from the West Wing. So, to this week, three really fascinating if very different conversations for you. Britain, it seems, is united. There's a phrase I didn't think we'd ever use again. But the public reaction to the coronavirus outbreak suggests we are putting political differences to one side, something that isn't happening everywhere. Yes, I'm looking at you, America. Uh, James Johnson, former Dan Street pollster, now at Kext CNC, he talks us through the polling. We also think that we will change how we live when all this is over. But Times columnist Matthew Paris thinks that when the pandemic fades away, all the guff about social revolutions and binning the nine to five will disappear with it. And just for giggles, we will talk about the Labour Party, which is somehow managing to punch through the wall of virus news with an absurd story about a leaked report which apparently shows how Labour staffers who didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister plotted to stop him becoming Prime Minister. Lucy Fisher explains that all this means a massive headache for Keir Starmer, whose pleas for unity have been met with an escalation in bitter factionalism. But before the infighting, let's talk unity with James Johnson. One of the striking things about this polling that James you've done is in the UK it differs to what's happening in other countries Uh, there's no particular party political difference in people's approach to this unusually for a country which has spent the last few years riven over general elections and Brexit we now seem to be united yeah, so this polling that we've 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 done um, through Kex CNC really shows uh, that actually the UK has gone quite from one of the most divided countries in the world to one where actually opinions are not changing on on party ground. So if you look at one of our main questions in the poll, which is um, basically it gives people two statements, one of which is basically uh, I would prefer the government to um, to limit the spread 
uh, of the disease, even if that means a major recession or depression and the loss of many jobs. And the other statement is exactly the opposite. So I would rather protect the economy, even if that means um, the, the, the spread of the disease and the loss of lives. And on that statement, that creates quite big party differences in the US and Sweden. So in the US, there's a 26-point gap with Republicans much less likely to want to limit the spread than Democrats. And in Sweden, there's an 11-point gap with uh, the governing Social Democrats um, much uh, less likely to want to limit the spread compared to supporters of the, of the Sweden Democrats, the Populist Party in Sweden. In the UK, that gap is only three points. The Conservatives uh, are on 75% agreeing with limiting the spread and Labour on 78%. And we're seeing that across the board in quite a lot of these polling questions, whether it's increased support for the NHS, whether it's increased support for the World Health Organization, whether it's views of the media, whether it's sort of behavioural changes. So we have really seen this sort of um, rallying cry come, come together in the last uh, few weeks in the UK and uh, our country now being very united on this issue. To what extent do you think it, it is partly because politics has essentially been on hold in the UK as well, partly because we've not really had a Labour leader since the election in December 20, uh, 2019, certainly not a Labour leader that anyone took a great deal of notice of, uh, and certainly in the last uh, week or so we've had a Prime Minister who's been out of action as well. So it, it's felt like a sort of national effort, whereas if you look across the Atlantic, even in the last 24 hours, Donald Trump is very much still big as partisan as ever. Yeah, and in fact, you know, the, the government in the US was the only one not to receive a boost um, in this in this polling. So uh, clearly, you know, that polarisation continues to exist in the US. I think that's right about the national effort. I think people um, people generally feel that the government has done a good job. I think the uh, you know terrible situation of Boris Johnson in the last uh, last couple of weeks has clearly um, meant that people have rallied around uh, around Boris Johnson as a sort of um, as a leader. I think it's also the product of some more, some more sort of uh, deeper, deeper sort of phenomenon. So, you know, we don't have in the UK um, a populist party. Um, we have, you know, Conservatives and, and Labour are by far the largest parties. Whereas, if you look in Sweden, the reason for a lot of that polarisation is the existence of this party called the Sweden Democrats. They got about twenty percent of the vote in twenty eighteen, and they're the sort of Swedish equivalent of the Brexit Party or UKIP. That force doesn't exist in UK politics now. I imagine if we, if this pandemic had happened in 2015 or even 2019, um, when the Brexit Party and UKIP were in the ascendancy, we may be seeing some of that polarisation. So the fact we have those two major parties um, who are sort of um, at least in in terms of you know the very sort of basic way they sort of you know view the view the world, view globalisation, you know maintaining the sort of liberal order of things are much more united than than some of those other parties so yeah it's a few it's a few things i think okay so going forwards to what extent do you think this can hold the government's facing criticism on multiple fronts should it have gone to lockdown earlier should it have been testing like south korea should we have been seeing death rates more like in ireland you know and they've got the questions of ppe uh, care homes are opening up as a new front uh, how long do you think this sort of national unity will hold at some point you'd expect politics to come back into it wouldn't you yeah and i think this is you know where we've got to caveat all of the all of these things we know consistently whether it was in the brexit referendum in 2016 whether it was in the uk election in 2017 or even the election in 2019, we have got the most volatile electorate in many, many years in the UK. People change their minds very easily. They're much less wedded to their party identities than they used to be. Now, that can mean that everybody sort of, you know, splits off and goes everywhere with different views. It could also mean, as it seems to be happening here, 
that everybody is sort of um, equally uh, more positive about things and equally more united. So you can have a volatile public produce actually quite consistent results. The issue with that is, is that, as you suggest, you know, that could well, that could well change. Look, I mean, you know, there are some things here that I would you know, be quite sure will stick. So, for example, you know, there's big sort of unity on the idea of government getting more involved in business and getting more involved in the economy. You know, half of half of voters, you know, which is a striking number, basically support the government bailing out any company that's in trouble. I, I don't expect those things to shift that much. But in terms of government approval, in terms of Boris Johnson's approval, they are in a very strong position at the moment. But look, as with all of these things, the narratives change. And one example of that is a couple of weeks ago, when there was a lot of pressure over testing, in some other polling, I think an opinion, uh, opinions poll, um, you saw government approval come down when that testing was in the, in, the, in the news. Now, it's gone back up again in the last week or so, but it does just show how volatile this could be. And the government will not be resting easy until until this is over for obvious reasons. And I suppose at the moment, what the public are united on is a sense of the country pulling together. They want the, the saving of lives to take priority over the economy. Uh, but it's possible that opinion could shift, sort of that unanimity could shift as being opposed to what the government is doing rather than uh, supporting it. Yeah, and I think this is basically a big question for government now. So, you know, this question over how and when, um, you know, we we lift lockdown here in the UK um, is obviously going to test that. And uh, I think piece of piece in the Times um, on on the polling indicated today, um, you know, Matt Hancock and others are perhaps more pro holding that lockdown in place, while others are are, are keener to get the economy fired up. Now, if the public are incredibly resistant to that it's going to prove more difficult to do. And we've seen some interesting examples of this in Denmark, where uh, Denmark have opened up um, some of the schools for younger pupils. But I think about 35,000 parents have sort of, you know, formed a Facebook group and, you know, written in and done a petition because they don't want their kids to be the sort of guinea pigs for, for, for opening up a lockdown. That's the level of fear of this virus. And, you know, we could see the same sort of backlash happening in the UK. But at the moment, you know, those sort of, um, you know, perhaps perhaps slightly unfair to categorise them as right wing, but, you know, some of those more uh, shrill voices on Twitter arguing uh, to lift the lockdown immediately um, and uh, and so on are not being reflected in the public as a whole. What would you be doing right now if you were in Downing Street? Because obviously, you know, a year ago, you were polling, you know, matters of great national importance, like what the public thought of the Malthouse compromise, which seems like a million years ago now. But what, what would you expect the government to be doing in terms of testing public opinion? What would be your role in Downing Street if you were there right now? I think we'd all love uh, the Malthouse compromise back compared to, <laughs> compared to this. Um, what they really need to be doing and what, I'm sure, and what they are doing is you know, really sort of you know, consistently tracking the public. Tracking is everything with this because you want to be able to see really with something like this on a daily basis um, how the public mood is shifting because the, the great value of private polling um, is that um, you know, you're able to do more of it than is out there publicly and you're also able to ask your own questions and it provides an early warning system for where opinion is going to shift um, and uh, you're able to use that in sort of slower time crises so like over, over Brexit and where views were on that you know we could try and track where sort of um you know frustration and and backlash was going to come but equally in this crisis 
they will be looking to know what are the earlier signs that people are, for example, getting bored of a lockdown? What are the earlier signs that actually people are frustrated about the, the level of business support? Um, so, so tracking is absolutely key. And then also um, what we call in polling a segmentation, which is basically uh, a fancy way of saying, um, you know, splitting up the public into different audiences so that you can track those specific audiences and know how to target. So for example, if a particular type of of voter or particular member of the public um, is less likely to be obeying lockdown rules, they will be able to say, okay, we know it, we know roughly where those people are, we know roughly what media they consume, we know roughly what social media they use, and really be able to pinpoint those messages. So tracking, tracking is everything. Presumably one of the huge advantages the government now has, which they probably would never have expected, is that a huge chunk of the population currently tunes into a, a daily sort of public service broadcast in the form of the Downing Street press conferences. So in terms of reaching large numbers of people with those sort of key messages, and we've seen the uh, how the the podium has changed from the Downing Street crest to a sort of blue, nice blue and white, look after the NHS, you know, website address to these quite aggressive yellow stay-at-home messages. That's a whole new channel which governments don't normally have. They probably don't normally tune in for sort of government press conferences and speeches and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's basically a way for um, the government to communicate directly with the public on a daily basis. I think a lot of people watch those. A lot of people get their information their information from those. And um, that sort of transformation to different messages is, is interesting. I mean, certainly a, a few weeks back when when we were in this rather different world now of worrying that people wouldn't be obeying the lockdown or, or wouldn't be following it. I think, you know, number 10's polling, or, or so, so it was said, showed that, um, you know, younger millennial men were least likely to be obeying it. And I expect that's part of the reason behind this big social media push. And, you know, you see some really punchy social media advertising by number 10 now, you know, even when you're just browsing through Instagram or whatever, you know, sort of, you know, quite stark messages like, you know, don't kill your grandma this weekend, you know, don't, you know, don't spread the disease, you know, I mean, it's powerful stuff. And uh, I expect that's partly informed by the research they were doing. I think we're also helped in the UK by those being kept relatively to time. I think that the uh, President Trump's press conference last night lasted two and a half hours, I think, um, uh, which largely consisted of him showing uh, interview footage um, uh, from the last month uh, to journalists who'd already seen it. But um, so we were also helped by the, uh, the, the the sort of speed of these conferences as well. Just finally then, looking into the future, the crystal ball, and I know it's always very difficult when you ask the public what they will do in the future uh, because they're notoriously unreliable for actually doing it. How did the public think their lives are going to change as and when we do come out of lockdown? So this is really fascinating. So we basically asked people after the crisis is over, compared to before, what do they think they'll do more of? What do they think they'll do less of? And what do they think they'll do about the same? And, you know, as you say, big caveat, because, you know, this is people saying they're in the middle of this pandemic, they're in the middle of staying at home. Um, but we are seeing people say uh, that they're going to travel by plane less, that they're going to be going uh, to restaurants less, going to large scale public events less and the gym and cinemas less often as well. We are seeing that people are saying they want to be outside more, perhaps unsurprising, considering we're all currently uh, cooped up. And the other interesting thing is, is there doesn't seem to be a big appetite to carry on working from home afterwards. So only net plus four percent of Brits uh, say they want to uh, say, say they expect to be working from home more after the crisis than before it started. So the British public don't seem to be falling in love with working from home. I mean, one point obviously on this is that you know some people say, well, you know, look, everybody expected the world to change and consumer behaviour to change after 9/11, and everybody expected the world to change after the financial crash, but it didn't. But what we're talking about here are small marginal effects. So actually, 
in the US, you know, air travel, it took until 2004 for uh, air travel to reach pre 9-11 heights. And after the financial crash, people did eat out less. So we may well see some some significant some small but significant shifts in behavior after this crisis is over and there is that whole thing about how long it takes to form a habit you know in the financial crash is a much more gradual thing and do you know if people were affected they were affected at different times this is such the entire country is breaking its its daily weekly habits you, you know i can't remember how long it is you're supposed you know if you're trying to give up smoking if you get past is it six weeks or something? You're you're much less likely to ever smoke again, and, and maybe six weeks cooped up indoors might might break those those habits which have been locked in for so long. I think that's right, and I mean I think also you know this has an extra an extra element, and you see this you know consistently in the work we've done. You see that in that finding we talked about in terms of people really you know prioritizing limiting the spread over protecting the economy. This fear of this virus and this this very personal impact on people's health and their families' health means that, you know, this sort of sudden awareness of germs, this sudden awareness of, uh, you know, the threats from other people are not just going to go away in six months. You know, this is going to be something that lives with us for a long time. I think France, President Macron talked last night about how uh, after their lockdown is over, they, they're probably going to make mask wearing obligatory. This is not something that is just going to go away in a six months or a year. And even after there's a vaccine, um, if there's a vaccine, I expect that we'll see you know people much more acutely aware of their of their own health and uh, and and the risk from others for a long time to come. It will certainly do us all good if we carried on washing our hands as much as we have been. James Johnson, thanks very much. So are we right when we say things have changed forever? You can't move these days without coming across a huge think piece to claim the world has been turned on its head. Life will never be the same again. Travel, work, family, everything will be done differently in the future. Uh, not everyone agrees with that, though. And I'm joined by one of the doubters, Times columnist Matthew Paris. So, uh, Matthew, how are you? Where are you? How are you coping? I'm fine. I'm I'm in Derbyshire. There are worse places to be holed up. Uh, all is calm. All is good. In some ways, this is quite a nice interlude. And of course, like everybody else, I'm I'm making all these resolutions about how my life is going to change and how I'm going to be more sort of zen-like and accepting. And I'm going to listen to the bird song every morning. And I know <laughs> I know it isn't true. I know that I will just go back to the same old way of life as I did before, and I think everybody else will. To what extent do you think we will, because we are yearning for normality, not only will we go back to how things were before, we will do it with sort of renewed enthusiasm? Oh, yes. I mean, the speed with which we shall rush for our favourite pub, there'll be herds, <laughs> absolutely. There'll be a stampede. It, it, it just sort of slightly more seriously, though, Matt, I, having watched politics for so long now and and seen so many things that felt like huge crises at the time and, and sometimes were, and been part of the feeling that this is something that's going to teach us so many lessons and we're really not going to go into the next crisis like this unprepared as we were for this one and 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 things are going to change having seen all that and having seen how it never happens and the moment the pressure's off people just go back to their bad old ways and politics goes back to its bad old ways I just feel a, a profound, if not entirely uncheerful, cynicism about the whole thing. Do you think that this crisis is different to previous crises? Because, you know, if you go back to the financial crisis, people said everything's going to change after that. And of course, people were spent, had to wait a very long time before their incomes and that sort of thing returned to um, even pre 
crash levels, but actually it, it was a sort of more drawn out process. This is such a sort of defined thing. We are all now living our lives differently at the same time. Do you think that makes any difference to how it might change how we live afterwards? Well, yes, I think that illness or or fear of illness, anxiety, uh, fear of death, do put one in, if if not a hysterical frame of mind, at, at least in a, a kind of very emotional frame of mind. And those are exactly the sorts of frames of mind in which we we make resolutions, you know, oh God, if you just get me through this one, I promise I'll be on my knees every night and, and pray, you know, I'll never sin again, all that kind of thing. But the intensity of the crisis and the emotional intensity with which we promise that we'll learn the lessons, I think tends to contrast with the way we do slip back into our bad old ways afterwards. I, I would also say that the financial crash, although because we did get over it in the end, and ended up all just a little bit poorer. The, the, the financial crash at the time did seem very, very serious. You know, there were suicides in the, the city. There were harrowing tales in newspapers of fathers coming home and saying to their family that they were going to have to sell the house. We, we, we all wondered for, for our own jobs. I, I remember thinking, writing the columns that I do for The Times, are newspapers like The Times going to carry on? Are there, is there going to be a place for columnists in, in this new and austere world after the crash. I think we've rather forgotten how seriously we did take it. And of course, there were big questions about the survival of newspapers, along with lots of other businesses, in this crisis as well. Um, what do you think about this idea that now everyone loves the NHS and clapping on a Thursday night means that you know the view of who really are key workers and, and all that has changed? Do you think p- public attitudes really will change in the way that, that some think? I think there will be at least for a while, a little bit of adjustment towards public services. A sense of reliance on public services. Actually, we do all rely all the time on public services, but it hasn't felt so raw until recently. I think that sense of reliance and uh, that sense of reliance on doctors and medical wisdom will take a little while to, to fade. Although perhaps when we look back on it, we'll find that the NHS despite the undoubted heroism of a lot of its frontline workers, the NHS did not perform particularly well. It doesn't appear to have performed any better than the German or the French health service, for instance. But there is this slightly religious feeling about it, and it's all bound up with fear of death, I think. I suppose because of the sort of religious view of the NHS, particularly in the UK, we are somehow able to separate the good that's being done is down to the NHS that we love, and anything bad is down to... The government. So the 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 question of you know PPE getting to nurses on the front line, but if it's not getting there, then that's down to the government. You know, testing as a decision by the government was actually it's all bound up in the health service, if you like. Yes, and that's completely un- unfair. The government does not run the health service. Um, NHS England runs the health service in England. Uh, it, it, it for a long time the health service has been devolved at arm's length from government. Not only do they not themselves order the face masks from China or wherever, or look at the letters offering these things from the European Union, uh, it, it hasn't got anything to do with ministers. They can issue commands and edicts and things like that. But the, the NHS is a huge bureaucratic monolith, uh, and, and, and it is in, in many ways self-governing. So I suppose we can blame politicians for 
claiming credit for the NHS and then saying nothing to do with me when things go wrong. But the truth it is, is that it is nothing to do with them when things go wrong. It's the NHS itself. And what about the way that people are viewing their politicians? Because it's it's remarkable the way, the way that the government in general and Boris Johnson in particular have seen, and some of the other senior ministers, Matt Hancock and Rishi Sunak, have seen their, their sort of personal ratings soar in what is a you know, massive crisis in which you, you if the opposite happened, you wouldn't necessarily um, be surprised. Do you think, and particularly given Boris Johnson's illness and recovery, do you think people are changing their perceptions of senior politicians? Not permanently. Um, they'll be back to hating politicians soon enough. But uh, w- when people are afraid, uh, as in war or as in some global pandemic, and again, I mentioned the fear of death, they, they do tend to cleave to their leaders if they, they possibly can. And, and the truth is that, that our leaders are not evil men and women. They're mostly doing their best. They always have been, and we can see that they are. So so it isn't easy, I think, to... It isn't difficult for us to suspend our critical faculties while, while the crisis continues. It, it won't last for long after the crisis. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be back. We won't be out of a job, Matt. <laughs> and what about, um, what about the sort of political attitudes? The, the extraordinary polling showing that more than half of people think every company should be bailed out, every last unemployed person should have their, their full wages repaid by the government. Does this shift politics? And, you know, at a time, you know, Jeremy Corbyn slightly crassly suggested that uh, all of this has proven that he was right. But do you think this changes politics, people's attitude to what the government should and shouldn't do? Well, I I don't, as a believer in the free market, think that it proved Jeremy Corbyn right. But I do think that he had a point. And I I do think that what he said will have resonated uh, with, with, with people. And I think for a little while, there will be a softening of attitudes towards the big state and towards big state spending, because it did appear that despite Tory cries at the last two elections that there is no magic money tree, suddenly Rishi Sunak appears to have discovered a magic money tree. And it's not going to be easy for ministers in any government, Tory or Labour, to say, uh, well, I'm afraid we haven't got the money we need to uh, combat global warming and to to pay for moving to a, a greener society and a greener industry, when it's perfectly plain that in the emergency that we're facing now, money appeared to be no object. In the end, money is an object. In the, the end, the money that we're either borrowing or printing those debts are going to come back to haunt us. But but just for the moment, I think there is a, a, a slightly different feeling towards government spending and also towards big government, government intervention. It will pass. <laughs> <laughs> there is something very strange about covering politics remotely when politics is so much a sort of people business you know partly because it's great if you can bump into somebody in the corridor and tells you something that they shouldn't but politics even the way that politicians interact with each other and the way they interact with people like you and I and with the voters it's so sort of sterile you know this conversation would frankly be much nicer but if we were doing it in person. I'm a bit of a skeptic about virtual meetings and virtual conversations I've recorded two programs for my BBC Great Lives my biographical series in each of which I've been in one place. My, I've had a BBC producer in London, another producer in uh, in Bristol. I, I've I had a guest in America and a guest in in Paris, and it, you can do it, but it, it isn't the same. Partly 
Of course, you, you can now conference where, in a sense, you can see people, although it isn't isn't really the same. You don't really know if they're looking at you. You can't catch people's eye. But also, so important in any conversation is the ability to, to chip in. It, it's a very important social skill, learning when you can interrupt, when you can chip in, when is the appropriate moment. It doesn't work with with virtual meetings. Some businesses after this will be saving money by not meeting physically, but but having more conference calls. I don't think we're going to move into a, a new world in which we don't feel the need to, to see people or be with people any longer. Matthew Powers there. Up next, uh, we attempt to explain what on earth is going on in the Labour Party. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast. Now, anyone who thought that a new Labour leader was going to herald an end to the old factionalism in the party uh, was sorely mistaken. Uh, The rest of the country might be in the grip of a life and death pandemic, but Labour is in the grip of a row about some nasty WhatsApp messages and the claim that Jeremy Corbyn didn't become Prime Minister because people were plotting against him rather than the fact that, you know, he was Jeremy Corbyn. Now, of course, something did stop him winning in 2017. And you could argue that had it not been for that endless infighting, particularly after the coup in 2016, after the EU referendum result, maybe things would have turned out differently. Professor Philip Cowley, the politics professor, he's pointed out that you only needed a thousand people to vote differently in 2017. And that would have created an anti-conservative blocking majority. It wouldn't have given Labour a majority, but it would have probably put Jeremy Corbyn into number 10. Worth pointing out the flip side is that you only need 51 one people to vote Tory and Theresa May would have got a Commons majority. Uh, but all that seems like a lot of water under the bridge. Here's the big point. If Labour had been more united and if they had been polling more strongly back in 2017, Theresa May probably wouldn't have even called a general election. So maybe the counterfactuals don't work. Anyway, beside all that, Keir Starmer, who could frankly be forgiven for wondering why on earth he ever ran to be leader of this lot, he's now launched an investigation into the leaked report, uh, which is supposedly into Labour's handling of complaints, including anti-Semitism. The report that was obtained by Sky News publishes alleged transcripts of private WhatsApp conversations in which Corbynites were branded nutters and a senior female Corbyn loyalist was described as crazy and a bitch-faced cow. 
And yes, these people wanted to run the country. The big problem, of course, with all this coming now is that all the cranks, conspiracists and Corbynites are stuck at home with nothing but their Twitter logins and their wild imagination uh, to help them lose their collective minds over all of this. So here to explain what the hell is going on, or at least try to, is Lucy Fisher. Lucy, how are you doing? I'm very well. Uh, thanks, Matt. In in lockdown, like you and uh, all your listeners, but not faring too bad when the sun's shining. So just as a bit of light relief, if nothing else, explain to people who, for some reason, might not be completely across what on earth it is that the Labour Party is tearing itself apart about now. Well, um, you may remember that last May, the Equalities Watchdog took the fairly extraordinary step of launching a formal probe uh, into the Labour Party over allegations of institutional uh, anti-Semitic racism. So it opened this big inquiry investigating whether the party had unlawfully discriminated against, harassed or victimised people because they are Jews. Now that investigation is still ongoing. Um, I think it was expected to report around the end of spring, summer. Who knows where that timeline uh, is left by coronavirus. But in the meantime, I think left-wing allies of Jeremy Corbyn, as he sort of has left the party, there's the transition, a new leader, Sir Keir Starmer, has taken over. I think that they wanted to try and get out their version of events and their side of things and feed that into the ECHR probe. So some um, unknown people, this is an un, uh, anonymously authored document that has been leaked online, unredacted. It runs to 850 pages, so I can't claim to have read all of it by any means. But it is a huge document that aims to show um, that, yes, there were problems in Labour's um, handling of complaints, but that these um, these issues uh, apply to all complaints. So it wasn't peculiar to uh, complaints about anti-Semitism. And secondly, they really try and focus in on this idea that there were um, a cabal of centrists or right-leaning, um, right-for-the-Labour-Party-leaning figures who were working in the headquarters in the early part of Jeremy Corbyn's reign who were actively sabotaging the Corbyn project. And that's why they couldn't properly get a handle on the anti-Semitism problem. Now, for people... People listening to this, they might think, well, hang on, we were told that Jeremy Corbyn's takeover of the Labour Party was complete from, from top to bottom, whether it was the Shadow Cabinet or the NEC or momentum taking over local constituent associations. In fact, it turns out, according to this report, they claim, that Jeremy Corbyn was just a, a small cog in a machine that was constantly working against him and that Labour HQ party headquarters was full of the enemy, the people trying to stop Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister. Is that realistic, do you think? I certainly think it is the case that in the early part of Jeremy Corbyn taking over, he didn't have his people in some of those top positions, whether that was sort of the general secretary when it was Ian McNichol before he was um, offered a peerage and, and sort of left that position. And um, Jenny Formby was put in place, a few other kind of other senior positions in the party headquarters. I do remember from, from reporting on that early period, there was a sense of tension there. I, I suppose there's also a question, you know, there's different kind of tribes and cultures. Sometimes you'll always find people rubbing up against each other when there's a new uh, a new administration in town. I'm sure that's something that's always seen. What is really remarkable about this report is that they have raked through 100,000 emails, also um, uh, several private WhatsApp communication chats between various characters, and have picked out a select variety 
of um, incredibly vitriolic messages sent by these um, centrists about some of the left-wingers. Now, we don't know what the left-wingers may have been saying about the centrists in return on their own private messaging, but I'm not surprised to see a huge row break out about data breaches, uh, potential data breaches, uh, privacy and confidentiality um, after seeing um, some of these messages that, that have been published. It is, uh, it is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, even more extraordinary, this report seems to have been put together while the, while the country was bracing itself for the outbreak of a pandemic. One of my favourite things to do during the last couple of weeks of lockdown uh, is uh, unfollowing and blocking as many mad Corbynista conspiracy theorists <laughs> as possible. All those people I thought, oh, maybe I do need to listen to this wing of the party. And uh, No, they've all gone. Anyone now who uh, gets irate about something that I might have said about Jeremy Corbyn in the past, they've all gone. How have sort of Corbyn land responded to this report? Well, uh, it's it's got a lot of people in, in a big flap. Um, I, um, I, I, like you, have not been uh, been following the some of the the left wing Cor- Corbynite champions and outriders uh, in in recent um, weeks and months as closely um, once we knew that Jeremy Corbyn was on his way out. But I did check in last night with uh, Navarra Media and um, was very very amused uh, to hear my own name brought up and dragged uh, through the mud. <laughs> I think I was described as crazy, which rather um, undermines um, some of the um, pearl clutching of uh, the Corbynistas who, who criticise centrists for um, describing uh, Corbynites as, in quotes, nutters. So um, <laughs> it was, I must admit it was quite surreal to, to hear my own uh, name uh, brought up by Aaron Bastani, but there we go. Oh, there's a name to, to conjure with from the past. <laughs> I've asked this question many times on Twitter uh, as to whether or not the guy who does Aaron, Aaron Bastani does any other characters. I kind of think he's going to need to get a new character at some point when we emerge from all this. I mean, this is a massive headache, isn't it, for the uh, new leader of the Labour Party that frankly he could have done without. It is, despite the fact there are frankly bigger things going on in the world, it is a big test for Keir Starmer. And I suppose one of the problems has been, he his whole argument has been, we need to be fighting the Tories, not fighting each other. Unity is key. But is I mean, there is a counter-argument, in which some of his own MPs have made to me, that actually we don't need unity. We need to get these, quotes nutters out of the party. The only way you can end the factionalism is to remove one of the factions rather than sort of glossing over it and pretending that everyone gets on. I think there is possibly a middle path here. and oh, in a, a way, third the, way. The, the, A third way, if you will. Um, and and in a sense, this report and the extraordinary circumstances in which it's been leaked online, unredacted, may help him in that um the extreme elements of 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 factions that are not willing to unite and move forward past the Corbyn era this may be um a way for him to throw those people out of the party or certainly block them from having senior um official roles um or formal positions in the party so the report may may actually end up helping him because i think he you know he he has what he has you know in, in front of him which is different factions and labor's always been a sort of wide umbrella from the sort of the left the soft left left through to, to, to new Labour types and I think he has to start in, in some way build on that but if he try and retains the sort of the the elements of that that are willing to work together um, he might be helped but no I, I agree with you it's a sort of extraordinary timing for people to decide to dump this online I thought Chris Bryant um, uh, the um, Labour MP for, for Rhonda had it just right yesterday when he sort of said you know in the middle of a health crisis it would be the most self-indulgent thing to engage in internecine bloodletting in this way so he he very much 
was sort of encouraging colleagues to try and paper over divisions and, and focus on tackling coronavirus. Uh, unfortunately, the, the seriousness of the report, both the contents and the wider kind of culture and practices it um, purports to reveal, and also this leaking of it unredacted, which has meant um, that it's claimed now that neo-Nazi websites have um, amassed the personal details of some of the people who made complaints about um, alleged anti-Semitism uh, ha- have been compiled. It means that it has to be taken really seriously. And Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner, his new deputy, have had to come out overnight and say they're going to launch this big independent inquiry into all aspects of the report. I, I don't think it's going to go away. They have to. They have to sort of deal with it. Lucy Fisher there on Labour's infighting. Now, if you spot something that you think we should be talking about, serious or silly, we really don't mind, then drop us an email to redbox at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoy the podcast, why not tweet about it or post a review on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Times subscribers can also sign up to my morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, my huge thanks to James Johnson, Matthew Paris, and Lucy Fisher. For me, Matt Jolly. It's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.